Welcome back to Screen Time. I'm Rokan. I'm Richard Roper. We have many things to talk about, and one of those many things is the many saints of Newark. Spoiler alert, this of course is the much-anticipated prequel to the Sopranos series, and it turns out that that might be kind of a double-meaning, ironic title, because there ain't no saints in the many saints of Newark. Hmm. We'll talk about that and whether you should be running toward it or running away from it. Yep. I think we all kind of know if you've seen the promo on HBO Max or the, you know, on, they're running this huge advertising campaign because it's coming yeah. out both in theaters and on HBO Max simultaneously. Yeah. Day and date, as they say now. Yeah, and wow, uh, it does look spectacular. We'll talk about that. Plus, breaking entertainment news we need to share with you. But yep. first, the Ron Roper Podcast is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com. The digital landscape is changing rapidly, and to compete in today's business environment, you need an experienced partner. Since 1995, AmericanEagle.com has partnered with companies of all sizes, offering web design, development, e-commerce, mobile apps, digital marketing. It all drives your overall business success because they know that today's online world is your opportunity. Get started today at AmericanEagle.com. Breaking news. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Yeah, this is insider stuff, but it could be soon stuff that affects everyone who watches streaming television and broadcast television shows or, or goes to the movies row. There's an ongoing dispute and debate. You might have seen it if you're following on social media because a lot of stars, big time stars are now weighing in. It's a dispute and a disagreement between the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, the IATSE, and the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. You say, well, wait a minute, the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees. Well, that's just a kind of an old-timey term, but it really encompasses a lot of behind-the-scenes workers on every production you can imagine, whether it's people handling uh, props and behind the camera, all the production people. Is the best boy Iatsi? Yeah. I would think yes. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot of the usual disagreements. When a contract is up and the union is looking for a new three-year basic agreement, they're looking to improve working conditions for camera operators, costume designers, prop makers, other behind-the-scenes workers. A lot of this has to do, you know, it, it's not just because of the pandemic, but there's increased awareness of, first of all, a safe working environment, and I mean physically and emotionally safe, also working conditions. And you and I know a lot of people who are on both sides of this issue and both sides of the camera, and we hear from a lot of people who work in production about the incredibly long hours they're putting in. And that's always been the case. And listen, it's a good, strong union. You will get overtime if you have to stay yeah. late. But there's the issue, too, sometimes of turnaround. If you're working a 14-hour day and you have to drive 60 minutes or 70 minutes to your house for the night and get four hours sleep and you have to be back on the set at six in the morning, that leads sometimes to unsafe working conditions because tired employees make mistakes. Right. We see it with the pilots. You know better than I do about this, right? Aren't there rules about like the times where flight attendants, you know, if sometimes a flight will get grounded because there wasn't enough time or the flight right. attendants have to go home because they've been on a ship too long. Right, right. Well, that'll happen if you're on the ground and you're waiting to go. Yeah. They they actually take the people off, like your pilots or your, your flight attendants. That's true, yeah. And, and then turnaround time has always been one of those bugaboos in all union negotiations because the bosses are like, well, I work 20 hours a day. What's wrong with you people? Yeah. Well, it's just not how it works. And, and especially when you talk about these kinds of workers in entertainment, these are the people in part who put the lights over the heads of the people, <laughs> right? And remember, I mean, we've had cases where uh, people have gotten seriously injured by being hit by 
improperly rigged lights. I think that's what happened in the Phantom of the Opera. There was some sort of union action there. <laughs> that, that, that that was cut out, that scene. So, you know, you don't know why exactly uh, certain things happen there. But this, So I what found, does this really mean for us? Well, what it means is that this week, as we're speaking, this is the last few days of September. This podcast will be airing still in September, but you guys don't. And thank you, by the way, for everybody who's been listening. They're going to vote for strike authorization, which is the first step with any union. Anybody who's been in a union, you and I are in a couple of different unions. First thing you have to do is get the membership to agree to a strike authorization. Then the guild members, the union members representing you can call a strike and they don't have to get everybody back in the hall. Teamster style with Jack Nicholson as Hoffa. To authorize the strike. So they might authorize the strike by this week, and then it could happen quickly. Now, if it does happen, that means just about everything shuts down because even the union members who are in separate locals and you know different mm-hmm. types of unions have, have said they'll walk out as well. If, you know, if this portion of the behind-the-scenes crew is going to walk out, we stand with them. So the Screen Actors Guild standing with them? Well, it's interesting because I haven't heard that the Screen Actors Guild, a lot of big stars have gone on record as saying, you know, we can't do this without them. We stand by them. I haven't seen anything officially from the Guild. It was interesting, too, because even with some of these stars, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, who by all accounts is one of the most popular actors, not only in the world, but on movie sets and treats everybody great. But he put something on Instagram the other day. He had finished some shoot, and he said, you know, long 12-hour day. We all worked hard. Now you're going to see nothing but my taillights. I could use a drink. Good night, everybody. And a bunch of people on the set or from crews said, that's exactly our point. You just left. We have four more hours of work to do. You know, when you leave the glamorous movie set, who takes down the lights and wraps up the cables and right. you know drives the trucks and everything? And I don't. He did not mean it as a slight, but it sort of indicated this chasm between the twenty million dollar movie stars and the hardworking union people. And you know, you and I have talked about this because there's this thing about the Hollywood elite. You know, and they love to do that on you know Fox News, which is hilarious because. Some of the people on the air are making as much as movie stars and have bigger homes in the Hamptons. You know, Jennifer Aniston saying to Sean Hannity, hey, your house is blocking the sun. Uh, But, you know, this notion that Hollywood is this elite community when, in fact, most people who, as you mentioned, the Screen Actors Guild are out of work actors or barely making enough. And they try to keep their union dues going and their union benefits going if they get a walk on role or a speaking part. But on any movie set, there's 250 people, and there are six millionaires, and then there are 244 hardworking people, electricians and lighting technicians and props and caterers. Those are really blue-collar jobs. They're skilled labor, but they're blue-collar jobs, and this is what this is all about. Show business strikes always annoy the public because they're like, you people are in show business. What are you striking over? Because you had the Writers Guild. You had the Directors Guild. You've actually had the Screen Actors Guild at one point threatening to walk away. But have... If the the Screen Actors Guild walks away, it'll be down a large, long red carpet. Just so you know. (laughs) And Ryan Seacrest will interview them as they walk away. (laughs) (laughs) Has this union ever gone out before? No, there was a big battle, um, and this is uh, reporting from the Los Angeles Times. Uh, In March of 1945, the last time it looked like there was going to be such a walkout in this scale was a clash between what was then known as the Conference of Studio Unions, and they were in a turf war, Uh if you will, with the IATSE. It was all about wage suppression, allegedly, by the Chicago mob. Oh. Allegedly. And there were violent clashes in what was uh, referred to as Hollywood's Bloody Friday or 
the war for Warner Brothers back in '45. I will say this. Oh, that's a good. That would be a good. That'd be like, a good indie movie, movie wouldn't yeah. it? And when you think about that timeline, March of 1945, we were engaged in a much larger and consequential war known as World War II at the time. <laughs> but that really would be an amazing backdrop for this story of this this clash and the alleged participation wow. of the Chicago Mafia suppressing wages. I just, yeah. I don't know if that really happened. It's allegedly. Who's asking? Yeah, exactly. Hey, speaking of that, let's talk about the Many Saints of Newark, which is about the Newark, New Jersey mob, which was a sade, of course, in The Sopranos. And now this is a prequel to The Sopranos as a movie that's going to come right into your house if you've got HBO Max or you can go out to the theater and see it. Anthony got kicked out of school. I went through all that trouble. And for what? I'm always being accused. You're going to be good. That's what I want. I want to do whatever I can to help the family. That's what I want. Wonder what they talk about in that. I didn't catch the name. Pussy. <laughs> Put him on the table. I think I just got this jacket. Ah! You know, I, I try so hard. Gotta do something about Dickie Malasani. I know you can get anything. Look at Dickie Malasani. He steps up, takes care of his family. Takes Pretty amazing, Rowan. I'll start off right off the bat by saying people always ask if there's gonna be like, you know, El Camino, the Breaking Bad movie which took the character of Jesse Aaron Paul and showed what happened to him right after the events of Breaking Bad. And then you had the Deadwood movie, and you sometimes have prequels or the Veronica Mars movie. Sometimes it picks up the action later on, and people say, well, for the many saints of Newark, do I have to have been a fan of The Sopranos? And I'm like, well, to be my friend, <laughs> you should have watched The Sopranos. But yeah. as you know, it, it's 22 years since that series debuted in 1999 we've yeah. talked about that and kind of ushered in the golden or platinum age of television so my answer would be if you went to see or clicked on the you know the many saints of newark which is set in newark new jersey in the late 1960s and knew nothing about the sopranos it's still a pretty fascinating gritty darkly funny very violent look at organized crime in a neighborhood and in a city that was also supposedly the summer of love and then it turned into race riots right. and entire blocks burning. So it's set against that backdrop. So you have all these old school Italian mobsters who kind of want to just have their own thing and whatever the blacks do across the tracks, that's up to them. But now it's kind of encroaching on their world and there's a lot of uh, interesting stuff about that. Leslie Odom Jr., the great actor, plays a guy who used to be an underling in the extended Sopranos family. Now he's branching out on his own. So you got clashes between his operation and the Italian mob. But for someone like yourself, who, you know, and millions upon millions of others who love The Sopranos, it is such a more enriching and exciting experience to watch this prequel if you know The Sopranos inside out because every scene you're going to be elbowing the person next to you. That's Junior! That's Uncle Junior! And it's all different actors playing, yeah. you know, uh, uh, Uncle Junior. Corey Stoll, who's a great actor, he was in um, House of Cards and, and other stuff. He plays Uncle Junior, and you you know when he's, he's you know he's bald and he's kind, sometimes kind of a buffoon, but also has this horrible mean streak. Yep. And you see him, but they also have um, uh, actors playing you know big pussy early on in his career. The great Vera Farmiga plays Livia Soprano. That's the mother. Oh yeah, who was played by Nancy Marchand. So think about her at the age of maybe thirty eight, and she's already starting to pick on the kids 
Um, and of course, we'll talk a lot about Michael Gandolfini, the son, the real life son of James Gandolfini, is playing the 17 year old, basically uh, Tony Soprano. But even like uh, Billy Magnuson is a terrific actor, plays Paulie Walnuts, and he's just starting to get that little gray for those wings that he had, you know? When you see the promo, or is it the commercial, I guess, for the movie in this particular case, because they're buying their way on. Mm. You do see that, and you're like, oh, my God, that guy does really work as Polly Walnuts. Yeah, and, you know, like the guy, the the actor playing uh, Silvio Dante, who was made famous by uh, little Steven, mm-hmm. right? Um, he's already, there's already jokes about his hair, because it was clearly a wig. We knew that. <laughs> and he, but he's still doing the facial expressions. So they're not doing impersonations. It's not a Saturday Night Live skit. But these this younger generation of actors is doing a great job of playing a lot of these characters when they're 30, mm-hmm. who are, we're going to see later when they're 65. But know, understanding and, the tone of what those characters yeah. were. It's got to be weird because you know already you know what's what gonna happen. happens yeah. to that character. So you have to be faithful to that as an actor. You, you can't do. just decide to go off and do it. Until yeah, and they have to do certain things. And, and for example, uh, John Bernthal, who everybody knows from The Walk Dead and tons of other great roles. He plays Giovanni Johnny Boy Soprano. Now that's Tony Soprano's dad, who was right. referenced a lot. But he he's in prison, you know, at this time, you know, and that's how uh, the main character in this film is actually uh, Dickie Moltisanti, who is Christopher's father, Christopher oh, Moltisanti, yes. Michael Imperioli. So Dickie is uh, played by the great Alessandro Nivola, who was not really a character later on in the series but had a huge influence and he's actually also essentially Carmela's cousin by marriage so that's how Michael Imperioli as Christopher called Tony Soprano his uncle he was you know so that's the relationship there but this and I I know this sounds complicated and there's a lot of players to keep track of because then Ray Liotta plays the grandfather of Christopher, and it's great to see Ray Liotta in a oh, Soprano story. Always. So there's a lot of going back and forth, but it is still essentially a story of, first of all, a lot of these characters early on starting to become who they are. So young Tony Soprano, he's in high school. He's a big, hulking kid. Mm-hmm. He's a great football player. He's an excellent student. He's a little bit like AJ, as we see later on in the actual Sopranos, because he's also a screw-up. He's always getting into trouble, they show scenes that were referenced later on, like stealing the ice cream truck and, you know, things like that. Petty crimes, but he's going down that path. His dad's trying to keep him out of that. And then there's even a counseling session with a high school counselor, which is a clear foreshadowing of Dr. Melfi wow. and those sessions. So I loved all that. And I don't want to give away. I'll tell you off the air. I'm sorry, podcast <laughs> listeners. I'll tell you all in about a month. But there's a scene where a major character from The Sopranos, we get a glimpse of them. I'm not going to say if it's a he or she. We get a glimpse of this major character for about 45 seconds in a scene that seems kind of minor, and this person's kind of in the background. Then something happens, and this person kind of gets knocked to the ground, and you want to tell this person, get up, run away, and never look back because we know what's in store for this particular character 30 years down the road. So that's the kind of richness that they they layered in into a story that everybody could still understand because it's about, you know, family loyalties, betrayals, blood oaths. There's some horrific violence. I mean, you know, they always figured out in The Sopranos a new way to kill somebody. You know, somebody run over someone's face and crack it like an Easter egg Mm -hmm. or, you know, someone get choked to death. I mean, violent stuff and same thing here. It's the kind of movie where a walk on the beach between two lovers might end up with one of them being held underwater until they can no longer breathe. Let's go the other way. 
Yeah. So for people who may be younger and didn't catch on to The Sopranos, never went back and watched it, yeah. but they see this, will it encourage them to go to The Sopranos? I don't see how it can't because it, you know, it ends. It gave, the ending gave me chills because it, it again it's still thirty years before the events of the Sopranos, but it the last like four or five scenes almost reminiscent of the original Godfather, where you know those series of hits are carried out, and that's not what happened, but it happens in this film. But it does do two, three, four, five things happen in succession, are like. Well, that's what happened to that character. That's why we never see them in modern day. They don't get out of this movie alive. Oh, that's how this character was set up to become more powerful. And it's certainly about the making of a made man. Tony Soprano, at the age of 17, is he going to keep playing football and try to get his grades up? Or is he going to take those big stereo speakers from the back of a truck for free mm-hmm. and party a lot and, and find someone to buy beer for him outside the liquor store? And also punch somebody out if they insult him you know insult him so you see and we know which way he goes and you could see it and uh, michael gandolfini it's pretty amazing because obviously he was very young when his father passed away yeah he doesn't look like his dad but he's you know he has kind of does though yeah and i shouldn't say it doesn't look like him because you know look back james gandolfini we already saw him kind of fully formed by the time he was in in, in movies but you could definitely see this kid growing up to be James Gandolfini yes and there's you know there's a certain father son you know physicality and mm-hmm. stuff you know I mentioned these other actors none of these other actors are related to the actors whose roles they're taking on but they all do a good job of it in this case yeah just just the kind of way he moves he always you know because Tony Soprano was this big hulking guy and you always had the sense he could he could crush your head like a grape but he was also always kind of out of breath and trying, you know, and he was sometimes physically, sometimes emotionally, and you could see that this kid. And then, of course, he's at home, and his mother makes him a meal. And if he says one thing about the quality of the eggs or something, <laughs> ah, you never loved me. You're an ungrateful such and oh, such. Yeah. And we see Janice, who was, uh, you know, the sister, who was the kind of, you know, flighty and got involved in all that stuff. At this time period, she's maybe what thirteen or fourteen, and she's already starting to wear bell bottoms and spouting hippie philosophies. Mm-hmm. And you're like, yep. She's going to become who she becomes later on. So I wow, think it's brilliantly awesome. done, bro. I think that it's brilliantly awesome. done. I had, it just by happenstance, on a Sunday afternoon in Central Park, by the Balto statue for New Yorkers. You know what I'm talking the about? The second basement for the Mets? Uh, no, no. No, the dog. Oh. Uh, they uh, was walking there with my daughter, and mm. we and all of a sudden they see coming down the paths there in Central Park, James Gandolfini. Oh, wow. With a kid on his shoulders. Ah. Oh. With a balloon, they were coming from some birthday party where there was a balloon guy, right? So the guy, the kid had like a balloon hat on mm, or whatever. Mm. And I said to my daughter, I go, that's the guy from The Sopranos. And oh, she was wow. a teenager at the time. And it was like, you're not going to, this is unbelievable. I can't believe it. And that little kid is is him. And that uh, is the most, oh, it's like, and wow. now forever, I mean, it's it's one of my favorite memories, you know, of, you know, we meet a lot of people or whatever but but just and i didn't go up and talk to her or anything but it's like it's like having de niro walk past you that's the way i looked at it Mm. because he's he was such an important figure in television arts at that Mm -hmm, point and mm -hmm. is just one of these 
characters, and he played a character that is so iconic and will be forever remembered for that role. He was in a lot of other things. I think people... Yeah, uh, you know, he he played a stuntman turned enforcer in Get Shorty. Right. He had that memorable scene in True Romance where he tries to off Patricia Arquette, and she's like, you want to play? And next thing you know, he's on fire. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, you look back at the timeline, you realize he was like in his 30s. Yeah. He, you know, he, he, was, he, only was, he was only 51 when he died, but James Gandolfini was one of those actors. He looked 50 when he was 30, and he was probably going to look 50 when he was 70. He just right. had that that kind of weight in more ways than one, and that's that, that's interesting. Such an awesome thing, though. Yeah, and I, I'm so to, to see his happy. son doing this, yeah, because it could have gone, it could have ruined the movie. The stunt, if if it was stunt casting and the kid couldn't act, and I know David Chase, the showrunner, the creator of The Sopranos, who also you know created the story for this, had his trepidations about that until so they met with him and saw that this is no, this is someone who's an actor. That's great. You know, and can do it. Uh, and that pre- is great. pretty cool. Because we talked about this, actually, a couple of years ago when they announced that he was going to be yeah. starring. as we're like, oh, come on. But when you see the trailer for this or you see the commercial for it, you're like, oh, my God, it's, it's haunting, really, is what it is. All right, we will come back, and uh, we've got more things to talk about, including other series that led to movies. Some great, some so bad, it almost (laughs) killed the memory of the good TV shows they were based on. Yeah, and we'll talk about probably those more than the others. Portillo's, you know them. They're known for their famous hot dogs, all the freshest and tastiest ingredients right down to the poppy seed bun. And, of course, the legendary chocolate cake. I cannot stop talking about the chocolate cake. You know that if you listen to this podcast regularly. It's just the beginning, though. The menu's bursting with a mouth-watering variety of favorites, from charbroiled burgers to Italian beef. Cheese fries, chopped salads. They do healthy stuff here, too. Great salads. Yeah. Love their salads. The best. A Chicagoland favorite since 1963. Now located in many places around the United States of America. You've got Florida, California, Arizona, many parts of the Midwest. They don't have it in New York yet. And I know there's going to be a fight when it goes into New York in more ways than one. (laughs) But I will say, New York, you do not know what you are missing. Order for curbside pickup or delivery today or ship Portillo's anywhere in the United States of America. Are you listening to me, Brooklyn? (laughs) Portillo's.com. P-O-R-T-I-L-L-O-S.com. Of course, it's Woke Up This Morning from Alabama 3, which went on to become the anthemic theme for The Sopranos, which you say this movie that is now coming out. The Many Saints of Newark. Is definitely worth seeing, whether you've seen The Sopranos or you haven't seen The Sopranos. But that's a big win for a movie that is a prequel or comes out after, in this particular case, a prequel, but comes out after the actual original series, television series came out. So few times has that ever really, really worked. Is there another one that you can think of that you really liked? Well, it, you know, there are different categories, I think, of when we talk about this role. Because, for example, this is you might as well call this an origin story because that's really what it is. Mm-hmm. So it's very consistent with the theme and the look and the characters, as we talked about from The Sopranos. Then you have movies such as the Downton Abbey movie, which was which I liked, which was essentially a, a two-hour special that mm-hmm. was set a couple of years after the events of the great television series. So you had 
Dame Maggie Smith and all the other dames and all the other sirs, <laughs> you know, that wonderful cast, everybody returning. And it was like set a couple of years later and we picked up the, you know, what was happening with everyone. All right. So those seem kind of consistent with the quality of the TV shows. Now, in a lot of other cases, all they're doing is just taking a show, sometimes just taking the title of the, of a TV show and turning it in to a movie. Yeah. Or, you know, so for example, you know, 21 Jump Street, those two movies are kind of fun. Yes. Actually. Yeah. But they're they're just kind of you know satirical plays on that that you know in jokes they're not really about the the tw- the gritty allegedly you know TV show. Well, the way the Brady Bunch was, which I thought yeah. was actually sort of smart in what it did. Yeah, I did too. Uh, I had fun with that. And then you got get smart. Another one of those. I don't think that one worked as well. I agree. Although Steve Carell was perfect for it. Yes, he was. It just was not the kind of writing because Get Smart is one of the funniest television shows of all time. It's yeah, got to yeah. be in the top 20 best writing. Obviously, you know, it's it was Buck Henry. And Mel Brooks. Absolute and... genius, right, who did that. And and you just have to imagine, if you've not seen Get Smart, I encourage people to go back. I know you can find it somewhere in this universe. Go back and watch it. And then remember that that was a television show that played in the late 1960s during the heat of the Cold War. Yeah, yeah. so it was really this brilliant satire, very subversive, as opposed to a lot of these other shows, you know, that in the 1960s were ignoring what was going on in the world. So we had Gomer Pyle, USMC, and they never mentioned the Vietnam War, even though he was in the Marines in the 60s. It was the exact opposite of that. So with the movie some, you know, four decades later, it just felt like, okay, this is a funny spy spoof, but it's really got nothing to do with that. Now, here's another one for you, and a, a series that I'm going to guess that, and this is before your time, but that you were probably a fan of, and that's Mission Impossible, oh, the yeah. original Impossible Mission Force, which was very clever and smart and had this great cast. Then they did the Mission Impossible movie. In the first movie, they had all those characters, uh, Mr. Phelps and you know the, the actual characters from the TV show now played by modern-day movie stars and Tom Cruise, Ethan Hunt. And then it just became a James Bond series after that, and right. it's great, you know. It's it, you know, but it, but the Mission Impossible movies now have nothing to do with that television show, right? And I think they're better for it, quite honestly. When they were trying to be that, that first Mission Impossible still stands out in my mind as the most confusing film I have ever seen. In two thousand one, A Space Odyssey, everybody goes, I don't know what the hell just happened there, but it's a good movie. I did not feel that way about the first Mission Impossible, and it took me to MI four before I started watching that series again and looking forward to it because it was trying to do that mind game that Mission Impossible played with you yeah, yeah. It, in the TV series because you yeah, never really knew where it was going to go. I think the Mission Impossible movies, it's a very rare franchise where it's gotten better. There might be one in the middle that's not as good, but the very rare franchise where each succeeding film is more interesting, yeah, better plotted, great acting, and incredible stunts and CGI. Right. It's actually gotten better. That almost never happens. Have you seen Lethal Weapon 75 <laughs> or Jaws 476? It's personal, and the shark actually has a revenge fantasy. Then you have another category, Ro, um, where really good TV series have then become even bigger movies. And I think of The Fugitive, for yeah. example. Now, that was a great show, mm-hmm. right? The, and it was all about the pursuit of the one-armed man, but... David Jansen's Dr. Richard Kimball was really on the lamb 
on a series of adventures. And the one our man became, it was in the final episode that he finally tracks him down. Whereas the movie was this perfectly constructed thriller just about that one particular plot point from the original TV series. You also have to make a decision when you're producing this or you're going to green light it as the bank or whatever. Is there an audience still for that television concept? Yeah. And what I think is interesting about, especially Mission Impossible, I would say that two-thirds of the audience that goes to Mission Impossible has no idea it was ever a TV show. I never think that's seen a low it. estimate, yeah, probably. Maybe 80%, yeah. 90%, especially internationally, yeah. right? Because it's, it's Tom Cruise and you know doing the whole thing. But then you have movies that come after like this HBO model, like you're going to see here with The Sopranos, like mm-hmm. Sex in the City. Yeah. And the thing with that is Sex in the City was a constant argument after every episode in an era in which it would come on at the same time every Sunday night. And then on Monday morning, people would talk about it at work or whatever. And women would decide who they were or you know which character they represented mm-hmm. in this. And then they would they would have these arguments about you know what the intent of those characters were. It was really kind of a fascinating time because it really did catch a zeitgeist. And it was it one did. of the last great moments of everybody like the Sopranos were everybody watching television at the same time. It really was appointment viewing. Right. And I mean, obviously game of Thrones did that as well. And we have a little bit of that left, but it's not like it was kind of in that moment. Yeah. And it was, you know, it was interesting because it was the sex and city and Sopranos were on the same night (laughs) right on HBO. Talk about, you know, sort of different kind of viewing parties and different hors d'oeuvres served, you know, this is a pig's foot (laughs) and some gravy (laughs) off of this. And these are, what was it? The martinis, the different, uh, sex in the city. Cosmopolitan. Cosmopolitan. Thank you. That was the big, that was the big drink. Everybody was having, everyone wanted to be like Carrie Bradshaw or all these girlfriends were like, I'm the Carrie and you're the, this, you know, I don't remember that. So I think it worked much better as a series than it did as a film. The movies were increasingly terrible. I thought actually. And that was the other thing. Same thing with the Entourage movie, which was incredibly terrible. Now, you were on Entourage. And I was, and I still get some whopping 12 and $16 checks for, for my role as me on Entourage. And that series was another one that, you know, it captured a moment in the kind of early 2000s and this kind of splashy, you know, it was Mark Wahlberg was the executive producer. It was loosely based on when he first made the journey to Hollywood and had his Entourage and, you know, it had all these beautiful girls and amazing Hollywood sights and, you know, Hollywood dreams. It's not a show that holds up really well. You know, there's so much homophobia and other stuff. The characters were in most cases. Uh, but, it was, you know, Jeremy Piven, it was a role he was born to play. Oh, yeah. Uh, in mm-hmm. many, many ways. But by the time the movie came out, all of that stuff had already started to change. And it just felt it was living. It was v- very dated. That didn't work. I'm going to give you one more film that I think is a great movie that took a terrific television series and then made it even something greater, The Untouchables. All right. I don't disagree with you on that. I am with you. And this ends this particular edition of the Rowan Roper Podcast, brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios. AmericanEagle.com is a full-service global digital agency providing best-in-class web design, development, hosting, digital marketing services, and so much more. Visit AmericanEagle.com for more information. We want to thank our executive producers, Tim Melanius and Renee Nelson, and our production director, Demita Menezes. Terrific work, as usual, from our production crew. We really, really appreciate it. And, Ro, I really want to thank our listeners. Uh, I don't want to get too deep into the numbers and everything other than to say that we've enjoyed a really nice spike in listenership over the last couple of weeks. We appreciate that. 
We urge folks, listen, if you listen, you know where to find us, but tell your friends. And it's great when I hear from someone that said, I didn't realize you guys were now doing a podcast. It's so great. And we've gotten some terrific emails and even just on the street comments. Some of them are just, they, I think they, they're saying we love you, but I, I, I just heard the you at the end. <laughs> hey, hey, you! <laughs> so I think they're saying they love us. But sincere yeah, thanks to I everybody who has been tuning in. That's what they're saying. See you next time.